0: Let me introduce myself. I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch. mean militia i'm your host mean joe grizzly and today is a special day because on this day 40 years ago one of the greatest horror films of all time was released and i'm of course talking about john carpenter's the thing so let's head on over to the video store grab a copy of this masterpiece pop it in the vcr because it's time for mean joe video 100,000 years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery alien creature had frozen, but not to death, and man is the warmest place to hide. So before we talk about John Carpenter's The Thing, it's very important that we go back and kind of see the roots of how this story came to be. And it kind of all started back in 1938 with a novella written by John W. Campbell Jr. called Who Goes There? And it was published in Astonishing Science Fiction Magazine and it was very similar to the story that John Carpenter presented us in this 1982 classic. The story of an alien that shapeshifts, that slowly starts infiltrating this research base. Only the big differences is, is the, the alien in the novella was like a bipedal alien that eventually became this, like, shapeshifter. And eventually it would finally get its first film adaptation in 1951 by Howard Hawks, titled The Thing from Another World. And there would be some changes. One being the setting where it went, goes from Antarctica to Alaska. But the research facility concept still remains the same. But the major changes will come to the monster itself, which would go from a shape-shifting alien to a more generic alien concept, but would later be explained in the movie as pretty much a giant killer carrot. (laughs) And as ridiculous as it sounds, it was still fairly effective to the audience at the time. One scene in particular that is very interesting is it may be the Film industry's first full body burn stunt. And the scene is where the thing breaks into this room where all the characters are held up at, and they set it on fire with a flare gun and kerosene. And throughout this scene, they keep throwing kerosene on the thing while it's burning. And you generally see the cast members being in grave danger while this scene is taking place. It's it's a pretty impressive scene. One one part of this scene in particular, there's like a character that is holding up like this mattress or some kind of padding or something, trying to protect themselves from the the burning body of the thing. And another character comes in and throws kerosene on him while he's in front of this character behind the mattress and it sets the mattress and everything on fire so it's like wow i can't believe that they actually got away with doing this and kind of shows you that all the rumors of unsafe stunt practices back in in early hollywood it kind of shows you that all that was really true this one scene alone kind of proves that but that's really the movie's really big claim of fame But the other claim to fame that it has is its influence on so many directors at the time. And one being John Carpenter himself, who claimed that it terrified him as a kid. But later on in film school, he loved Howard Hawks' filming style so much that it greatly influenced him. And really, with the success of Halloween and The Fog, John Carpenter would be given a chance to direct his first big studio film which would be the remake of The Thing. So in 1981, armed with a $15 million budget, a screenplay by Bill Lancaster, a phenomenal cast, a young Rob Bottin on special effects, and Dean Cunding helming cinematography, John Carpenter and Company would shoot for 12 weeks and then release on June 25th, 1982. And I would love to tell you that it did wonderful but unfortunately, it did absolutely terrible. Only making $19.5 million after spending $15 million to actually make the movie. Some of the biggest critics in the business at the time just trashed it. Vincent Canby of the New York Times said it was foolish, depressing, and overproduced, qualified only as instant junk. Alan Spencer of Starlog said that John Carpenter was better suited to direct traffic accidents, train wrecks, and public floggings, while Roger Ebert said it was a gross-out movie capable of putting a scare or two into an audience, but was let down by the film thanks to what he called the superficial characterizations and implausible behavior of the scientists on that icy outpost whatever the hell that means Roger (laughs) we all know if you're a horror fan we all know that Roger Ebert hated the classics but for this movie in particular for the thing nobody liked it the critics hated it and that essentially made this movie a financial failure barely making its money back and it's pretty crazy hearing all of this and i'm here to tell y'all that if you already don't notice already that they're all wrong (laughs) the thing of course found its appreciation years later and maybe it was a movie that people weren't ready for at the time but what makes this movie a science fiction horror masterpiece for me it's several things the first and what is one thing that i don't hear a lot of people talking too much about is the setting and the cinematography. The setting being in Antarctica gives the audience a feeling of isolation that is overwhelming. It's just as effective as the setting in space was for Alien. The base itself feels so confined with these narrow halls and small rooms, tiny windows, and sometimes low ceilings that give you this really crazy feeling of claustrophobia and the camera movement and perspectives and shots add much more effect to certain situations making you feel like you're in the room with the rest of the cast and the pairing of these two is perfect and it definitely makes this film even more effective you feel cramped, uncomfortable and trapped while watching the long drawn-out shots give you a sense of impending doom like, even though you can see all the way down the hall, there's still a chance something can take you from the shadows by surprise. And the tight shots going around the corners gives you an equally unsettling feel. And at times, this makes you feel like you are viewing the environment from the creature's perspective. Which I don't think with all this being said that we should expect anything less from Dean Cundy. He after all was the cinematographer on Halloween and that's one of the best shot films of all time the second is the cast the cast is absolutely phenomenal with this adaptation being a more direct and faithful adaptation of who goes there they go back with the research team in antarctica concept and the cast that they have that they put together in this film is nothing short of incredible. Uh, I know that some of these names might not be as big and recognizable to general audiences, but to me, two of these are at least, they're in my top ten of all time. And the lead role going to Kurt Russell, where he plays McCready, which is a helicopter pilot on the outpost. And his character, although the entire movie there's there's not this immense amount of dialogue like you're not getting to know these characters deeply they're they are there and i'm not saying that they're shallow because they're not shallow by no means you learn a lot about their personalities in a very short amount of time with very little information but macready is the take no shit helicopter pilot on the outpost and I honestly think it might be Kurt Russell's best performance. And even though he doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue, for some reason his his performance is super effective in what, he, what they were trying to do. You really get a sense that he's the guy in the camp that is really the leader, even though he's not officially the leader. That all the other members of the outpost look to him for guidance as like he's some kind of veteran of whatever situation they're in um and he also comes off as this very gruff and does not like to lose type personality as well like with the scene where he's he's playing chess with the computer and the computer beats him with one move at the last minute and he pours this whole glass of whiskey down in the computer and says "cheating bitch" and waltz out. You just get this this whole sense of his personality is really explained all in a very brief moment. And I felt like he was very effective in his performance and how, especially when. Everyone stops trusting each other, and he's kind of put out on an island on his own. His conviction of him knowing that he is human and that he hasn't been assimilated by the thing is—it's very sincere. And to me, you never—you never stop believing that he is the only one that truly is human. That he is, if without a shadow of a doubt, McCready is the one that is not has not been assimilated by the thing. And to me, that's that's why I think this might be Kurt Russell's best performance ever. I know I said that before, but I, I really do. He, he is just so damn good in this movie. My second favorite performance probably goes to Keith David in the role of Childs. Uh, Childs is kind of the, not really the polar opposite of McCready, but he's kind of McCready's rival. There's always this constant tension between the two, like they're both competing for who is the top dog in the camp. Uh, And the one thing about Childs that is very interesting, out of all the characters that I thought were the thing when I first seen this movie, he was the one that I thought was pretty much assimilated from the beginning. Uh, His suspension of disbelief with everything that happens throughout this movie is kind of the red flag for me. And even though there's not any real definitive evidence that he has been assimilated by the thing, the fact remains the same that I've always suspected him of being one of the first ones assimilated. There is, however, a little scenario at the end of this movie that kind of suggests that he might be assimilated, but that's something that we're going to talk about towards the end of this episode. My third favorite performance in this movie probably goes to Wilford Brimley as Blair. Uh, Blair being the scientist that kind of figures out what's going on and has this kind of existential crisis when he realizes that if this thing gets out and it reaches like civilization that It will take over the world within weeks, if not months, and no one will be able to stop it because no one would know because it perfectly imitates and copies whoever it absorbs or whatever it absorbs. So it's, he has this weight on him that essentially causes him to go insane and he has to make a decision and that decision is to trap everybody there at all costs. So he destroys all the radio equipment. He destroys all the means of transportation with the helicopters and the, and the, the snowmobiles, and just goes absolutely crazy. And they isolate him up on, out on this like tool shed where they insulate him and they lock him in and they keep checking on him periodically and it's hilarious because the last time they check on him, they go in there and he's like I'm doing fine I'm I'm good you can let me out now and in the background he's got a noose up where he's gonna hang himself and it's very dark but at the same time it's it's pretty funny the way he's claiming I'm fine you can let me out now I wanna come out but he's got a noose in the background and my fourth favorite performance is probably Donald Moffat, who plays Gary. And Gary is seemingly like the the person of authority on the outpost. He's, he's the guy who's pretty much like the cop or the constable or really just head of security or in some way, shape, or form. And he gets my vote for my, one of my favorite performances because there are times where he looks like he's a very poor authority figure and then there are times where he is very effective as an authority figure and one of the times in particular is at the beginning of the movie when the norwegians are chasing the the husky through the snow which is who's been assimilated by the thing and they're shooting and they're throwing grenades and whatnot and when they touch down and they're shooting towards the other outpost members trying to kill this dog he wastes no time breaking a window sticking his pistol out and blowing this guy away and that was freaking awesome that was just this badass moment where he just blew this guy's brains out who was essentially acting crazy at the time we didn't know but now we know that the guy was justified in the way he was acting (laughs) but then there's times where he There's times where he just seems like the weakest link in the entire group where he's just barely holding it together. And then there are times where he's like he's completely lost it. And one time in particular when they did the infamous blood test scene and everything just popped off with the blood test scene and he is the only one that is strapped down to the couch still. And it's this hilarious moment where... He's sitting on the couch tied up and everybody's looking at him after they tested his blood and it come back that he wasn't infected by the thing. And he says, gentlemen, I know you've been through a great ordeal, but I'd like to not be tied to this fucking couch and starts flipping out and it's hilarious. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, and when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch but he definitely his performance is definitely a very rememberable one and that's not to say that the the rest of the cast wasn't memorable but these were just a few that that stuck out the most for me the other thing that makes this cast very effective is rumors have always circulated that until the actor actually knew that they were going to be the thing at the moment they didn't know so everyone was essentially in the dark for each time they took they shot until the very moment that that actor was going to be revealed as the thing that's when they knew so that just added to the paranoia and the the stigma that no one knows who the thing is because in real life they didn't know who the thing was either when they were shooting the film so that, that to me is just super essential to the effectiveness of this movie. And then we move on to probably the one thing that I can say above all others that it wouldn't matter if this movie script was bad or if the acting was horrible, none of that would matter because the one thing that the thing should be praised for above all others is for its groundbreaking special effects. I am a firm believer, and I, to this day, this movie to me is the gold standard for special effects, especially for practical effects. The stuff that they did in this movie was unbelievable. I feel like Rob Bottin doesn't get the credit he deserves with his work in practical effects. I know he's often put in the same category as Stan Winston, Tom Savini and Rick Baker, but I don't think any of them touch him when it comes to his work in this movie. The closest one to me is I can I can probably say that Tom Savini's work in Day of the Dead was pretty groundbreaking with, with the gore effects in that that movie. And I can probably say that the werewolf transformation in an American werewolf in London is pretty, is pretty, uh, is, it's pretty good, but ain't none of them ever made a head grow legs and walk away. <laughs> I still, to this day, don't know how the hell he did that. It's like the most amazing thing that I have ever seen. It, it, nothing about it looks fake it it looks like the head literally grew legs the and the the scene that i'm speaking of is is this one of the outpost members and i i don't know his name off the top of my head but he this entire scene is just batshit crazy so one of them seemingly has a heart attack and the the camp doctor tries to defibrillate him and when he defibrillates him his whole chest cavity and stomach opens up and bites off the arms of the doc killing the doc and then this monstrosity emerges from this this guy's body and kind of plants itself on the ceiling and everybody's just dumbfounded and mccready kills it with a flamethrower but when he's killing it with the flamethrower the head on the actual body tears away from the body and hits the floor grows legs and walks away and it's the damnedest thing that you've ever seen it's the infamous scene where the kurt russell and the guy one of the outpost guys is standing there and i think that his name was palmer and him and palmer are standing there. And palmer turns and says you gotta be fucking kidding me To be fucking kidding it's like a classic scene from the movie and it I just I don't know how the hell he did it some of the effects are some of the effects are, are kind of okay that's pretty cool but that one effect right there that and the dog when when they put the dog in the kennel the infected dog in the kennel with the other dogs and his face splits open his face splits open and he just turns into this blob dog looking thing and shooting off all these tentacles and everything like that that was just insane as well that's like their first the first time they ever seen the thing and just phenomenal like I I legit could talk about the practical effects on this movie for an entire episode I just I I don't understand why I I know that it's talked about a lot, but I don't think it's talked about enough. Like to me, no movie has ever hit this, the, the peak that this movie put as far as practical effects goes. This movie is the gold standard for me. And I love Tom Savini. I think that his work, he's to me, he's probably the second best. Because his gore effects just look so freaking real at times. But. Thomas Vinnie ain't never made a head grow legs and walk away. <laughs> and Rob Bottin did. So it's it's one of those things that Rob. Rob Boutin to me is very underrated. And this movie's effects. Even though they are somewhat praised. Are very underrated. This movie is the goat of practical effects to me. And that is, that's one of the honestly to me if you're not going to talk anything about this movie you're not going to say anything about it the one thing that needs to be talked about is the work and practical effects it's just it's a masterpiece in that regard on its own now the ending of this movie is to me it's very open-ended to a lot of people but to me i think it's pretty clear-cut as to what Actually went down in the ending. So in the end of this movie, for spoiler for those who haven't seen the movie, it comes down to McCready and Gary and one other, one of the outpost member that they go after the thing. They actually go after Blair because they know that Blair's the thing. And one by one, they get picked off. Where it's it's just McCready versus the thing. And McCready essentially blows up the thing and he goes off to pretty much freeze to death because the entire base has been destroyed and prior to them going off to destroy the thing child's disappears and this kind of solidifies my suspicion of child's being infected now When child shows back up he claims that he got lost in the storm and he just couldn't find his way back because he didn't have a line or something other when the power went out and the funny thing is is that mccready's sitting there and mccready essentially has what everyone assumes is just a bottle of whiskey but in all reality they made molotov cocktails out of kerosene and within that whiskey bottle is kerosene and he hands it off to Childs and Childs takes a big swig from it and McCready just kind of smiles and that kind of is one of those theories that Child was, it kind of proves that Childs was infected because he just drank kerosene and nothing happened to him so it's, that's one of the many theories, there's another theory that McCready was infected and Childs wasn't and that's how he infected Childs was by giving him like a contaminated bottle or whatnot but I think it just proves that Childs is is the thing and they do have uh Dark Horse comics made like these follow-up comics that kind of followed McCready and and I think there's there's maybe three or four series and they vary in issue I think one's like two one's four and one's like six but they Kind of continue the story in a way, and some of them are good, some of them are bad. But in the one story prior, like that follows up on this one, Childs ends up being the thing because they end up being rescued, and in the end, Childs transforms into one of the monstrosities that they have to face off against. So, in the movie world, it's still left very ambiguous on who who was infected who wasn't but in my mind it was child's and that's just another one of those things that makes this movie great and really it's guys i could talk about this movie forever uh, it's one of my favorites of all time and i think it's highly underrated in all aspects but i legit could talk about this forever and if you If you haven't seen this movie, I kind of just spoiled a lot for you, so I hope that you go and revisit it, and it's amazing that this movie is 40 years old and it still holds up. I recently just went and seen it in theaters, they had like a 40th anniversary of viewing of it in the local theater here in my home state, and seeing it in theaters made me love this movie even more which brings me to my final thoughts on the movie uh it's a damn shame that this movie didn't get appreciated when it was released and john carpenter considered it his greatest failure and in some ways it was his greatest failure because it sent him it sent his career in a different direction john carpenter would have been one of the most renowned directors even more now, like he—he's very renowned and respected in the horror and science fiction community, and even in the action community. But in overall cinema, John Carpenter is not as respected as a Steven Spielberg or or anyone on or, or Francis Ford Coppola or or uh, Oliver Stone. And and in all actuality, John Carpenter should have been on that pedestal with those guys. And this movie and it's failure is the reason why he wasn't placed on that pedestal and his career went into a completely different direction and it's sad because this movie didn't deserve the hate that it got it it should have been so much more appreciated back then than it was and i'm thankful that it has found its audience and has found its appreciation later in its life it's just a damn shame that it it stopped John Carpenter from advancing in his career pretty much. But with the great script and the great cinematography, the phenomenal cast and the groundbreaking out-of-this-world special effects, I think that John Carpenter's The Thing is a absolute classic and is a must-watch for any horror fan. And really anybody that's a movie fan in general needs to watch this movie. it's it's just there's so much about it that is so groundbreaking and with all that being said i give john carpenter's the thing a five out of five and it is grizzly grade guaranteed you must watch this movie if you haven't seen it go check it out It, it you have to watch it So I want to end this episode by issuing an apology to all my listeners. Uh, This episode was supposed to come out two days ago. And the reason why it was such a long delay is I had planned on releasing this really nice YouTube video commemorating the 40th anniversary of this film. And I worked on that Video for a very, very long time. I had actually been working on it for over a week, and worked all through the night on Friday night, all the way into Saturday morning, and uploaded it. And it was immediately taken down. Uh, I followed all the guidelines I was supposed to to not get copyright infringed or whatever the strike is that you get, and none of it mattered. It still got taken down within like 30 minutes. So I was. Already planning to release the audio for this episode, but I had not finished certain parts of it and mixed it properly. I just had it for the actual video that I was going to release. So that was my first step into the world of YouTube and needless to say, uh, disappointment is not the word. I don't know when the next time it is that I'll be trying to use YouTube again, but I can tell you right now, it won't be anytime soon. Uh, I put a lot of work into that video and it was all for nothing. So with that also being said, that left my channel stagnant for a couple of weeks. Now I did take a week off for vacation, but not releasing any content for that long is not fair to y'all. and. I want to apologize for that. So moving on in the future, um, we're going to get back on schedule and I recently just seen the black phone and that review will be dropping very soon. Uh, It's either going to be on tomorrow morning or it's going to be Wednesday because our release schedule here is Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays unless there is a special occasion like the one for this episode for the 40th anniversary for The Thing. So, we'll be getting back to schedule. Um, I want to thank Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Um, I've done a little overhaul on the intro music and the outro music, as you can tell. Uh, that's going to be getting tweaked over the next few episodes. And, uh, Carl Casey and White Bat Audio, they, he he, he makes great work. Y'all need to go you need to go check out his music. He makes great atmospheric background music. And his synth wave is amazing. So go check that out. Uh, I want to thank all y'all for your continued patience. As I continue to go through this journey of trying to figure out how to properly do this. So I can bring y'all the best content that I can possibly give y'all. Uh, got a lot of stuff coming up. Like I said, we got the review of the Black Foam. Uh, we got Stranger Things part, Part 2 of Season 4. And of course we have Thor, Love and Thunder, and I plan on giving a pretty good explanation on the, the events in the comics that lead up to him encountering Gore the God Butcher and Jane Foster becoming Thor and Willie Miller, so stay tuned for that. Uh, you might get a good little content dump because of the time crunch we have there with all that stuff coming out, but that remains to be seen, we'll see if that happens. Uh, But just remember, I appreciate all y'all support and never forget, I'm Joe Grizzly, bitch.